Beth Bennett. And I'm Leilani Henry. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 7th, 2023. Coming up, I talked with Alyssa Apple, health psychologist at the University of California, San Francisco, about her book, The Stress Prescription, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease. In a compact seven-day format, she presents a lot of the current research on stress, mindfulness, and their connections to mental and physical health. But first, we begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. In Antarctica, a fringe of frozen ocean water called sea ice surrounds the continent. Seasons are reversed from what we have here in Colorado. So the sea ice is smallest in March, which is the beginning of winter, and largest in September or October, the end of summer. The area of the ocean that is frozen can be as large as the United States and Canada combined, or seven and a half million square miles. But not this year. On February 23rd, sea ice around the southern continent dropped to just over 700,000 square miles, less than 10% than its maximum size, setting a new record low. And that beat the old record by 20,000 square miles, which was set just a year ago. Scientists are concerned that the sudden downturn in the amount of floating ice around Antarctica is an indication that global warming has finally reached the ocean around that continent. Lower sea ice extent means that ocean waves will pound the coast of the giant ice sheet, possibly affecting Antarctica's giant glaciers. But it could also result in higher snowfall on the continent, which could help reduce sea level rise. According to Dr. Ted Scambos, Antarctica's response to climate change has been different from the Arctic's, and up to now has been more about wind changes than warming. Scambos is a senior research scientist at CU Boulder and a contributor to the National Snow and Ice Data Center's Arctic Sea Ice News and Analysis webpage, which reported these findings. Most of us have experienced some anxiety before speaking or performing in public. Dry throats and racing hearts are typical. But have you ever wondered, is my anxiety speeding up my heart or does my racing heart cause the anxiety? Well, a group of researchers at Stanford had the same question and they found that in mice, speeding up their heart rate by using a kind of molecular pacemaker made otherwise calm animals act more anxious. This finding confirms that heart activity can influence your mental state and finding ways to lower the heart rate may be a way to treat mood disorders such as anxiety and depression. This connection is not new. In the past, researchers have tested this link by giving drugs that can safely speed up the heart rate. And then they use brain imaging to look at brain activity, which confirmed the anxiety state. But those drugs acted on the whole body and the role of the heart was not specifically identified. If the findings replicate in people, they could have implications for treating mental health conditions. Current medications are not foolproof and often take months to work. Going through the heart may be a quicker, more effective alternative. 
This study was published last week in the journal Nature. If you're interested in bioarchaeology, mark your calendar for March 15th. Dr. Lauren Hosek, CU Boulder, will present her research from a small 19th and 20th century cemetery of nuns from Southwest Denver. A construction project relocated the cemetery, meaning that Hosek and her team could undertake a bioarchaeological analysis of the remains of the Sisters of Loretto. Hosek's work in bioarchaeology integrates skeletal analysis with the study of material culture and historical narratives to address the interactions between human bodies and their broader social, cultural, and physical environments. Amazing. Something for almost every field in science. The lecture will take place in the Paleontology Hall of the Museum of Natural History on the CU Boulder campus. We'll link to the website in the show notes. Looking for a convenient yet scientifically informed formula for dealing with your stressful life? Dr. Alyssa Eppel gives exactly that in her book, The Stress Prescription, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease. She distills decades of research infused with her brand of mindfulness and humor into a practical and transformative seven-day plan of science-based techniques that can help you harness stress through more positive challenge and purpose. Welcome to the show, Alyssa. I'm speaking today with Alyssa Apple, who has written another one of these really cool books, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease, The Stress Prescription. And she has studied stress for a couple of decades now. And intriguingly, um, a number of years ago, delved into the relationship between telomeres and stress. So we can hear a little bit about that today, but let's start off by talking about the physiological basis of stress. What exactly is it in the body and how can it be our friend? Mm, good question. Stress, the stress response, the acute stress response is pretty dramatic and pretty amazing. Everything changes during stress. You know, most things are elevated, hormones and heart rate, the cardiovascular system, and uh, activity in the cell to defend the DNA from stress. And we recover from that acute stress response in a dramatic way too, a little slower, slower recovery than the mount, because we want to, you know, we want speed when we mount a stress response, because it's all about mobilizing glucose so that we can flee from a predator and stay safe. And then in our modern world, of course, we use it for rising up to situations, but we don't burn off all of the energy that we've mobilized. So that's part of our health problem. And then problems arise when the stress becomes chronic, when we're in situations that keeps our stress elevated for years and years. And the most common type of stress is really our thoughts. Our thoughts keep stress and anxiety alive. And that's how it becomes chronic. I love it that you started with uncertainty and the idea that 
for so many people, uncertainty is very uncomfortable and that induces the stress response. So how, how does that work? That's such a crazy thought, isn't it? Well, it's interesting because the uncertain future exists, period. It feels more uncertain now than before because of our volatile world, our unstable climate, our unstable political situation. And of course, the pandemic, you know, the word uncertainty was so common. Everyone felt the uncertain future. We felt it. And before that, I think we didn't name it. And now we know that drives us crazy. We can't stand it when we can't make firm plans and write them in pen, not pencil. The stress from uncertainty is subtle, right? It's it's not that there's a life-threatening situation right in front of us. It's more that we don't know. And when we don't know what's going to happen next, we need to keep a layer of vigilance on. We need to be prepared in case it's bad, in case it's stressful. That's what our body thinks. And so it's up to us, our awareness and our self-talk to remind our bodies, actually, you know, yes, there's a lot of uncertainty, but that's going to go on forever. And it's okay to relax. It's okay to let our guard down. And do you think in some ways, like I'm thinking of an analogy with the immune system, in modern life, our immune system isn't so challenged as it was in our evolutionary past. And so some of those immune system cells are just looking for something to get after, and it causes allergies and asthma and things like that. Do you and autoimmune diseases. Yeah, yeah. And do you think this there's <clears throat> a similar thing to be said for our stress response that, you know, in our evolutionary past, we had so many more acute stresses. And now we're kind of looking subconsciously looking for things to respond to. And there's not much. So we turn to uncertainty. Yeah, that that sounds right. We are built to stay safe over everything. So it's always a priority to find and detect danger. And some of us are really good at that, right? We cannot turn off vigilant mode. My sister is one of those people. You know, her start, her startle response is impressive <laughs> mm. at a sound. Um, and, you know, we know what that looks like in the brain. And it's it, that also happens in PTSD, that uh, being really wired for being prepared for a, a serious or traumatic stressor. What's going on in the brain when we have that level of chronic stress and that hypervigilant response that you're talking about? Do you see all kinds of neural systems activated that normally would, would be quiescent? Well, there's brain activity, that's one question, and, and then more of the chronic stress leads to changes in brain anatomy. And the classic study was by Robert Sapolsky, finding that there's hippocampal atrophy, that the neurons have less branching, and there's a smaller volume of the hippocampus. And we also know that the amygdala in chronic stress states can become more developed and enlarged. So we see those morphological changes. That's we, a frightening thought, that, <laughs> that our brains actually change. And speaking of Robert Sapolsky makes me think of gazelles and lions, which you talk about too. And that's that's such a great metaphor of being the lion. Can you talk about that? Yes. And I think that, you know, the name of his classic stress book, which is still, you know, an incredible read, is Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. 
they have a great stress response when they need it. And when they're safe, they're not ruminating about, wow, that was a close call and I could have done this better or <laughs> worrying about the future. They're not projecting into the future much more than, you know, the next few minutes. <laughs> so I think the that kind of primitive stress response is healthy and there's a good shut off and they don't get stress related ulcers. Whereas we carry it around, we can keep it going on and on with our thoughts. And so we make acute stress chronic sometimes. And I think that's what's happened during the pandemic. It's just this prolonged period. We got pretty good at understanding and knowing COVID. There was so much unknown at the beginning, but now we're just tired. You know, we still have to be a bit vigilant and there's just a lot of fatigue from years of uncertainty stress. And so I just have this vision right now of all these hippocampuses that have shrunk over the course of the pandemic, kind of a unpleasant image. But you do spend a lot of your book talking in constructive ways about how to deal with that stress. And one of my favorites is how you talk about hormesis and of course, exercise, we'll, we'll get into that and how that works is, is a really good one. But I love it that you introduce non-exercise methods for people that either can't or don't have the time or mm -hmm. something like that. So how exactly does that work? Like if you, I mean, I've known for years that I feel so much better, more relaxed, calmer when I go for a run or workout, but what, what exactly is going on with that? There's so much going on with exercise. <clears throat> so there is a cardiovascular fitness aspect. There's that systemic um, muscle strengthening aspect. There's more mitochondria that we have helped with mitogenesis because of exercise. There's more autophagy, cleaning up the junk in the recovery period of exercise. So it's this mobilization of the, of the energetic stress response, the metabolic stress response and the muscular demand and then recovery of all those systems. And so it's a nice example of a stressor that's just body, not also psychological. And when we can do short bouts of aerobic activity without the added psychological stress, this is, I think, as close as we get to of a good example of hormetic stress. Another really um, protective mechanism is awe and how you see beautiful things in nature. And that provides a sense of awe and that's calming and gives you resilience. When I think about how wonderful our cells are and our biology, I feel an amazing sense of awe myself for that. Mm. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, you've seen up close, you're looking in the cell in your bench work, and that must be pretty awe-inspiring. So yeah, let's jump into talking about awe and what that does for our brains and how it relieves stress and gives us resilience because that's a really important concept that you introduce you know i i i'm i'm awed by awe and how powerful it is yeah, and the new one. studies on it it's very exciting so the feeling of awe and wonder is considered a transformative emotion it's an experience kind of a whole body experience that can leave people with insights or embodied feelings that can last for years and years. My colleague, Dacher Keltner, is really the 
I would say the pioneer of awe, putting it on the map as a important state for humans that creates a lot of growth and resilience. And there's a re recent study, you know, so I think part of the nature effect, that powerful effect of being immersed in nature, water, you know, whether it's beautiful beaches or forests, there is a calming effect. And it's being used for treating blood pressure, for example, this um, forest bathing, green prescriptions that certain countries like Korea and New Zealand are using. And of course, we should too, but people are just going to need to know about this and do it on their own. Um, part of the nature effect could also be the awe that people feel when they're in nature, it, the small self in relationship to this grander world. People often describe the vastness and the horizons that they see as part of the wonder, the feeling that they get from being in nature. I think that when you perceive yourself as small and 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 that sense of awe expands your your outer view of the universe around you that puts your problems into perspective and they seem smaller you know sometimes when i see amazingly beautiful natural landscapes or seascapes i just get sort of a tingling sensation and i wonder if that relates to um, something that you talked about with vagal nerve stimulation. I, I sure I don't know much about vagal nerve stimulation and how that can, you know, that it's probably a communication channel between the body and the brain. Can you talk us through how that can communicate these physical sensations to our minds? Yes, I can try. <laughs> I don't know what the tingling is. I it could be vagal. What I do know is that a lot of mind-body practices that are moving around chi or energy create sensations like that. You know, maybe it's blood moving. Um, most of the Eastern medical sciences talk about that as the movement of energy. And we don't know how to measure energy, period, mm -hmm. in humans. We just don't. And I don't know that we will get good at it, but um, but it is there and it is moving around. There's energy transfer and we we shape it as well but um we can't i mean boy i'd love to study that if we could measure it better there's people trying to measure subtle body energy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as well as electric magnetic weak the ultra weak like electric magnetic fields that we can we can measure but we're not sure that that matters right and oh it's so interesting because we we're talking about energy and how some energetic experiences can be calming and relieve stress and reduce uncertainty. But then on the flip side, then there's the importance of using deep breaths to restore yourself. And I really liked the idea that you um, put out in, in either the introduction or the first chapter about those four levels of um, stress and how deep rest is, is at the very top end of that hierarchy. So can you mm -hmm. explain to the listeners, I had never thought about those levels and I think they're really useful. I do too. And it's amazing to me. It's such a, it's such a simple laying out of here's these different mind body states, but it's helpful because it helps us distinguish. We're not just on or off stressed or relaxed. We really do have some special states that we can work to use to work for us and shift as needed from red mind to yellow mind to green to blue. And it's that, you know, we need all of the states. We just don't want to spend the majority of our time in stress 
highly stressful red and yellow states, which we do, you know, we do as a society, we, most people feel, the majority of people feel that they're overwhelmed by stress. And that's just absolutely serious for us to take. Um, you asked about the Vegas and we think of this, this is detailed in a very big paper that we wrote led by Alexandra Croswell. It's a preprint. It's on my resource list with a book is for chapter seven on, or sorry, chapter six on deep rest. But what we, what we talk about is this balance between the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system and how these are not just automatic. We don't just, we're not just on autopilot and we can actually exert some control over the, the balance so that we're in a more restorative state where parasympathetic system is dominant over the sympathetic. Red mind is, of course, very sympathetic. Yellow mind is kind of baseline relaxation, maybe. What is true relaxation? We're probably carrying a lot of stress or at least unconscious stress. And so it's not true rest. And then green and blue mind are down in the restorative zone where we have let go of being vigilant and worrying and we're in our experiential body. And th those are the conditions for our parasympathetic nervous system to flourish, to become dominant, to have our vagal tone increase. So the vagus nerve, which goes from our brain all the way down to our torso, longest nerve in the body, is part of the um, control system for the counter the anti-stress response or the counter regulatory response. And it can suppress or turn off the sympathetic response so that when we are doing activities that stimulate the vagus nerve, whether it's breathing or using vagal stimulators, those are new, um, or you know, possibly through mind-body activities or in the recovery from exercise. These are all things that we think are going to boost the vagus nerve. So that's also going to suppress all the sympathetic activity and put us in a more restorative state. It is associated with positive feelings of ease and safety. And so we think of it as an important part of the mind-body connection. As you said earlier, so many of us are unconscious of the amount of stress we are carrying around. But one thing that might illustrate that for the listeners is I just saw a study that came out of Cornell that for people that are suffering from long COVID, one thing they share is constant high level activation of the sympathetic nervous system. Uh -huh. So I think that, that one of the take home messages I got from your book is that we can train ourselves to reduce that through a variety of methods. And so in, in our last couple of minutes, I just wanted to ask, do you have a couple favorite prescriptions that you like to use that you turn to? Okay, well, I'll, some are easy, some are harder. The easy ones we've talked about doing a burst, you know, five minutes, maybe 10 minutes of, of high intensity interval training. I'm not always willing to do that, but when I'm feeling the extra energy and the jitteriness or the kind of anxiety you can feel in your stomach, it hits the spot. <laughs> it really yeah. works. The metabolized stress and anxiety. Um, I love the nature effect. I try to, I try to, um, you know, the regular dog walk is a real boost to my health because 
it's built in. I can't, can't not walk the dog. And you have that loving relationship with your dog too, which is really. Um, oh, did I, I, I do. My dog is like an, you know, an angel that reduces my stress. I didn't know that I wrote about that, but I must have. <laughs> yeah, you did. I love that. I, I love dogs. So I think that's great <laughs> that you wrote about. Yeah. <laughs> the dogs are like kings and queens in our house. We have three i have to admit <laughs> um that's new that's kind of a post-pandemic you know overflow yeah um so then there's then there's more privileged ones and that you know and that includes going to a retreat i just think for anyone who has the opportunity to they are the most powerful way to really shift our balance our our autonomic nervous system balance and get more insights about how our mind works and develop new habits. I mean, I really feel like it's an active way to focus on neuroplasticity and resetting our baseline. And I've been doing things like monitoring, you know, I was on a two week silent retreat this year and I, well, I guess last year now, and I was, um, I was, I was loving looking at my aura ring and just getting to see responsiveness and sometimes not responsiveness during meditations and during sleep. And I did shift my baseline and it took over a week. I mean, it's not immediate, but it's possible. And it's, you know, it's pretty ideal to have those really protected times. It's a privilege. And I, I do want to say for the listeners that you do delve into some of the science underlying meditation and retreats. And unfortunately we don't have time to get into those, but I will link to your book in our show notes. And um, thank you so much for talking, Alyssa. It was such a pleasure to talk to you, Beth. Thank you for your wonderful questions and um, for, you know, talking more about hormesis. I can't get enough of it. <laughs> <laughs> Great, good, me too. That was Dr. Alyssa Eppel talking about her book, The Stress Prescription, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease. As the director of UCSF's Aging, Metabolism, and Emotion Center and associate director of its Center for Health and Community, she studies stress, aging, and obesity. Her book is quick and easy to read, yet leaves you with so many applicable practices that can change your outlook and reduce the stress in your life while simultaneously giving you the basic science on how and why of stress and the role of the techniques she espouses. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm the executive producer this quarter. Beth and I produced this week's show, Engineering by Shannon Young. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from VXX. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Leilani Henry.